morning to those of you that are joining us at home on Zoom. Um, yeah, if you're a guest on Zoom or your guest here in the room this morning, uh, welcome. My name is Dominic, and yeah, I get the privilege of uh, being the lead pastor over this community, and I get the privilege of uh, opening the word this morning. Glad that you're here, and I hope I get to, to connect with you. Um, this morning, I have a little bit of a dilemma, uh, because usually when I get up here to start a talk, whether it's here or someplace else, I like to tell a story or maybe a joke or some little antidote, you know, that kind of catches your attention and gets you on the hook a little bit, or, you know, just gets you to lean in. But this morning, I don't have one. And part of the problem is that every once in a while, it just happens that that's the case, that what we're going to talk about just kind of defies that type of intro. And I feel kind of stuck, you know? And I think part of that this morning is because the, what I'm called to do today, I feel like, is to bridge for us what we've been talking about for the last four weeks and what we're going to be talking about starting in two weeks. See, over the last four weeks, we've been talking about the, the gospel and what has been coined the fourfold gospel and the way that Jesus, the good news of him about his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, can be summarized in, in four things. The fact that he's our savior, he's our sanctifier, he's our healer, and he's our coming king. And last week when I talked about Jesus as our coming king, one of the statements that was made um, and that's been fun to interact with people on this week, was this reality that the greatest unseen reality of the present moment is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. That the greatest unseen reality of every moment is a person, and that's Jesus Christ. That at all times, Jesus is present, though unseen, and he's present as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. When we talk about him as king, it's not just that he's going to be a king then in the future and he's going to come as king, but he's king now. That, that this world is actually his, that he reigns and he rules over it sovereignly with love and with grace and with goodness, with justice. And as that king, he's also a healer. He's a sanctifier. He's a savior. And that's true right now in this moment. We talked last week about that's true every place that you go, that we get to be the representation of the king and his kingdom. We get to embody these truths and these realities. What I want to talk a little about this morning is the fact and the reality that though it's an unseen reality, the thing is that God has not left himself, nor has he left the world without testimony to that unseen reality, right? If we open scripture, we can look all throughout that God has always given a representation of the unseen reality of who he is. And in this example, or in this case of who Christ is, right? I mean, scripture speaks to the fact that creation itself is a testimony and a visual representation of, of who God is, his character, his nature, and it screams of his glory and his goodness. Scripture also talks about the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world, again, unseen, but bringing revelation and knowledge of, of who Christ is as the greatest unseen reality in the world, as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King. Jesus himself said that each of his followers, those of us that are disciples of Jesus, are what? We're, we're salt and we're light. We are an embodiment of the unseen reality of Christ as we yield to him as our savior, sanctifier, healer, coming king. And yeah, we live as salt to flavor the world and light to illuminate the realities of the kingdom that is unseen. Jesus also said that his followers would be his witnesses throughout the world, right? That when the Holy Spirit came, which he has, that we'd be empowered to be witnesses, again, embodying the reality of the unseen reality of Christ in the world. Jesus came to save the world and those that he has saved out of the world and into his body, into the church, 
are called to be a visible, tangible representation of who Jesus is in this world. So that though it is true, he is the greatest unseen reality in every moment. There is a way in which we are called to represent him so that the truth of who he is, his life and his kingdom is not unseen anymore, but it's embodied through you and I, the body of Christ. Anybody tracking with me this morning? Does that make sense? Yeah, cool. I get some nods. Love it. Here's the thing. This morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it means for us to be the body of Christ. What it means for us to be the embodiment of Jesus, who is the greatest unseen reality in every moment. But I want to do a couple things here scripturally and talk about how Jesus identified himself so closely with the church and why we would say that Jesus or the body of Christ is, in a sense, the body of Christ or the representation of it. I want to open up to Acts chapter 9 really quick, and the verses will be on the screen here, but you may be familiar with this. In Acts chapter 9, it's, it's the, the, the account of Saul, right? And he's on the road to Damascus, and he has just gone before uh, the rulers of the day, and he said, I want permission, written in a letter, to, to go and to persecute everyone who is a follower of the way. And so as he's on his way to Damascus, what happens? It says that Jesus appears to him, and it says, and, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Think about that for a second. Saul is on his way to persecute who? The church. People, physical, real people. The disciples and all those that had come to, to faith. There was even just 3,000 that had recently been, recently been added, right? I mean, it's a large group of people. And he's on his way to persecute these real, physical, tangible people. Jesus appears to him and says to him, why are you persecuting me? Do you see that link there? I mean, he's on his way to persecute the church, and Jesus says, you're persecuting me. Jesus is identifying himself so closely with the church that he would say when something is done against his church, it's done against him. Later in Acts chapter uh, 20, when Paul, Saul now becomes Paul, Paul is writing to uh, the Ephesian uh, leaders before, uh, on the eve of him leaving. He's planted this church now. He's encouraging this Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And Paul writes, and he says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to care for the church of God, which he obtained, meaning or literally purchased with his own blood. See, why, why would Jesus identify so closely with the body of Christ in that way that he would say when Saul was persecuting the church, that Jesus would say, you're persecuting me. And the reality is this, because one of the fruits of Jesus as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King, is not just that it has individual implications for us, but it has corporate implications for us. There is this body that is created that Jesus identifies with that says, that's my body in the world now. That the church is the body of Christ in the world now, which he purchased or obtained with his physical death on the cross and through his resurrection and through his ascension, that there is a physical body now that Jesus identifies with here in this world. And it's you and I, those who've been called out of the world and called into the kingdom, into the body of Christ, the church. Pretty incredible to think about that for a moment. I appreciate what uh, Pastor Anthony Carter said in his book uh, called Blood Work. Uh, how the blood of Christ accomplishes our salvation. He said this, he says, the Bible reminds us that Jesus purchased a people for his own possession. We understand the nature of possessions. When we purchase something, we expect to take possession of it. We own it. No longer does it belong to the seller. Even when we buy things with credit, like houses or cars, even though we don't really own them and are making payments on them, we treat them as if they're ours. 
We think these are my possessions because I bought them. The Bible says that Christ has paid the price for us. He has bought us. He owns us. His purchase of his people was not on credit, but it was paid in full. Again, pretty significant to think about. The fact that you and I, those who've been saved by grace through faith, because Jesus is a healer and a sanctifier and a savior and a coming king, that we actually don't belong to ourselves anymore. That we belong now to the king, a good king, a righteous king, a just king, a loving king. We talk a lot about missio as a family, right? Why? Why do we say that? Why? Because that's other language that's in scripture, that we've been bought and purchased and we've been freed from slavery and freed from dominion of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom of the son whom he loves. We've been brought into this family of God. That's who we are corporately. And we think a lot in Western society, we think a lot in terms of individualistic, that I've been saved by Jesus and now it's me. But scripture speaks to both (laughs) the individual salvation of us, but also the fact that we are saved into a corporate body and we actually don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Christ first and foremost, who has lovingly saved us and brought us into his family, into his kingdom. And actually we belong to one another. Corporate responsibility. (laughs) Corporate responsibility in a different way right here. Responsible, accountable, because of love to one another. One of the things that we're going to be talking about in the next series is the fact that one of the things that needs to be restored is the recentering of Jesus and his kingdom, not only in all of our individual lives, but in the church. The recentering of Jesus and his kingdom in all of our lives, but in the church as a whole. And here's why. (laughs) Because God's love calls us to that. I want to read just a, a a few verses here for you. Um, and you've heard these before. What I'm about to read for you is called the Great Commandment, and then we're also going to read the Great Commission, and we're going to talk about those two for a second. The Great Commandment, in Matthew 22, verses 36 and 40, uh, the Pharisees had just seen Jesus correct the Sadducees, and so they're like, okay, it's our turn. We're going to come up now and say something, and so this lawyer steps up, and he says, Jesus, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And it says that, yeah, and and so Jesus responds, uh, or excuse me, the guy says to Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus summarizes all all of the law, all of the prophets in this command to love. Love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And then at the end of Matthew, we see in chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, what we know as the, the Great Commission. And it says, and Jesus came to them. This is the disciples. This is, he's, he's already resurrected. He's come to them and he's saying, uh, says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has commanded them to do a lot, right? He's instructed them to do quite a bit, wouldn't you say? But if we connect that and think about the great commandment, how could we summarize teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you? How would you summarize that? 
I think rightly so, we could summarize that to say that Jesus was saying, go and teach them to love. (laughs) Everything that I have done with you in these last three years in my ministry here on this earth, in this physical body, with you and your physical bodies, ministering to this physical world as Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King, everything that I have done could be summarized up in love, the way of love, to do love, to live out love. And Jesus is saying now to the disciples after he's resurrected and he's coming to them, he's about to send them out. And he says, go into all of the world and everywhere you go, teach them to do everything that I have taught you to do. Every commandment which I have given you is what? It's about love. It's about embodying the love of God and the reality of his kingdom. And so this is what we're going to be talking about for a good number of weeks here. So the reality is the church exists to be the embodiment of God's love, God's presence in the world. You and I, individually, yes, but also together, we exist to be the embodiment of God's love, God's presence in the world. I think there's a question we've got to ask ourselves. Why is it that the world does not perceive us that way sometimes? Why is it that we do not experience that together with one another sometimes? We were talking about Jesus last week again as coming king presented this picture, right, of the new city, the new heaven, the new earth, the new city. And we talked about the fact that you go and present that picture to anybody in the world, and what are they going to say? They're going to go, I want that. Where's that city? Give me the directions. I'll put it in my map right now. I've got to go there. And then they find out that in order to get to that city, you got to know the king of that city, and his name is Jesus. And they go, oh, okay, like, yeah, that's, that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean... And if you tease out that question, often it actually end up this place where they go, well, actually, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm actually not too cool with the church. So, yeah. Why is that, church? Why is that? That we are called to be the embodiment of God's love, God's presence in this world, and yet too often, it just doesn't happen. Now, let me, let me say this. I am super proud of this church and the way that I believe we do embody God's love and God's presence in this world. Okay. Can you, can you hear that before you get too swirling into something? Even just this weekend, and there's so many examples I could give, but even this weekend, it just was an honor to be on texts with people and, and emails with people trying to figure out how do we love and embody the reality of God's love and God's presence for two different families that people within this community are working to support through Safe Families Ministry. Amazing an honor to be a part of that. Such a joy to see how people are sacrificially engaging in giving and serving and housing and feeding and praying and caring for people who are really in hard situations. And our church is stepping in in different ways to, to be the love and the embodiment of, of God's presence for them. I'm so grateful that this uh, two weeks ago, I sat with a, with, a, with a family and they were just talking about some of the hardship they're going through and the struggles of it. And you know they've been sitting there just giving some pastoral counsel and getting to pray with them. And one of the things that they said, you know, I just asked them, I said, how, how is God, you know, showing up to you in the midst of us? And they just said, we're so thankful for our missional community. We're so thankful that we have a group of people who are surrounding us in the midst of this and are praying with us and praying for us. This group of people, again, being the embodiment of God's love and God's presence in the world. I'm so grateful for the stories that I hear of those of you that are wrestling with vocation and calling and discipleship. And what are the 
intersections of all that and the ways that when I talk to you, there's stories of how in your workplace, people are coming to you because they, they see your character and they see the things that you're wrestling with and, the, and you get to have conversations. You get to pray with people. You get to point people to Christ. In that workplace, you are the embodiment of God's love and presence in the world. So please don't hear me say we're not doing it. We are. And yet I think there's always room for us to be refined, right? There's always room for us to continually submit to the great sanctifier and allow him to sanctify us as we surrender to his love, be filled with his love, be transformed by his love so that we can more fully go into this world and be the embodiment of God's love and God's presence in the world. Can anybody get on board with that this morning? A couple months ago, we did a feeding uh, kids around the world food packing day. You guys remember that? Super fun. And even in that, one of the things that I loved was that there was people, friends and neighbors who came and were, were participants in that. People who aren't part of our, our, our body, part of our family, but came at the invitation of, of people here. And they're in that room with us and they're getting to see us again, live out the embodiment of God's love and presence in the world. After we did that feed pack, food packing, uh, we, had, we had all the food. And so I got to connect uh, with my buddy, Jim, who's, who's the local representative for kids around the world. And uh, Kelly and I filled up the truck and we delivered everything. And I'm talking to Jim afterwards. And, you know, there's this thing where they call it follow the food, right? And it's you get to go on these little trips and see actually where the food gets delivered. And in those places, then they, they build playgrounds and they partner with local organizations and they build these uh, facilities and things where kids then get, get to eat the food, but also hear the story of the gospel. And as I was talking to Jim about this and just, just kind of listening, he kept using this phrase. He kept using, uh, he kept saying hope zone. He said, yeah, we have a hope zone here and a hope zone there and a hope zone there. And at first, the first time he said, it, I'll be honest with you, I was like, hope zone. Like, is that a city somewhere in one of the countries? You know, there's Cape of Good Hope and there's, you know, like, so I was like, did somebody name a city hope zone? And then he started using it so much that I realized, okay, he's not talking about a city because not all these countries have hope zones, right? But I was like, what, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, that, that, that's, what we, that's the term we use. That wherever these food boxes are delivered and wherever we partner with another organization, wherever we get to then maybe build a playground, wherever we create space for families to come and be fed and, and hear about the gospel and education and all this learning, he goes, we call those hope zones. And I remember standing there as Jim said that, and it just, it just stuck in me. And I, I've written it up on my whiteboard. It's been up there for months. If you've come to my office, you maybe you've seen it up in the corner. That's just stuck with me going, yes, yes. As I think about this call for the church to be the embodiment of God's love and presence in the world church, I believe that we are called to be a hope zone. That this right here, this physical building now that we have it, this is to be a hope zone. Our missional communities, wherever they meet and wherever they gather, whatever home it's in or whatever space it's in, that should be a hope zone. Wherever we gather, whatever we're doing, that should be a hope zone. Wherever, you, again, you are individually at work, at play, recreating, vacation, wherever, that should become a hope zone. Why? Because we as the body are to be the embodiment of the invisible reality of the love and presence of God in this world, bringing hope to this world. And when I think of a hope zone, I just, I've been thinking about this for a while and going, well, what, would, what would it be? What would it look like to be a hope zone? I think it would be first to be a place of hope, then to be a place of help, to be a place of healing, and to be a place of home. What do I mean by that? I think of the words uh, that Paul wrote in Romans in chapter 15. He said, may the God of hope 
there's not a verse for this, I apologize. That says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Like at the very crux of the gospel, the very intersection of the gospel and this world, it should be a display of hope. It should be a message of hope. That there's a God that created you, that loves you, that welcomes you, that sees you, that knows you. He knows everything about you, the good and the bad. And even in the midst of that, he moves towards you with love. He gives a sacrifice of his son. He comes in and he says, look, here's a new chance. Here's, here's hope. Here's something new to dream about, to think about, to consider. And the reality is you don't even have to work for it. You just need to receive it. That should be, that should be the message. That should be the reality that people experience every time they intersect with anything related to the church. It should be hope. An invitation to experience hope in the midst of the most hopeless circumstances and situations. Hope. And I think it should be help too. Meaning, not just, hey, we'll pray for you and we'll talk about these spiritual things with you. But again, I think of the words of, of James, the brother of John, when he wrote in, in, his, in his letter in James chapter two, and he said, you know, if you see a brother or sister who doesn't have food or doesn't have clothing and you just say to them, hey, good day, go stay and be warm, have a nice day. He's like, well, what are you actually doing? It's kind of in that process where he's talking about faith, right? Faith without works, it's, it's dead. I think for us to be a hope zone is, is to proclaim hope, not just with our words and those things, but, but, in, but in practical help. Again, like we were seeing this weekend, what, what, what food do these people need? What housing do these people need? How do we come around and wrap our arms around them physically, tangibly, so they, they, get, they receive help, practical help for the struggles that they're in the midst of. And they know, again, God sees me because his church sees me, not just spiritually, but physically as well practical, tangible help, and then healing. That the, What sin wants to do, what Satan wants to do, what evil wants to do in this world and does is fragment and tear apart, cause pain and cause ache, ultimately, finally leading to death. But God's love comes into the world to restore, to repair, to put back together again. Spiritually, physically, relationally, emotionally, healing, holistically. And then home. One of the key truths that, that Paul talks about over and over again in, in a lot of his letters is that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been brought into the kingdom or the family of the beloved son in whom we've received redemption and forgiveness of sins. Again, this picture of a family, of a home, that people are welcomed in seen with dignity for who they are as image bearers of God and no longer called an other or called a stranger, but called a brother and a sister and welcomed into the home, welcomed in to the family of God. I think these are ways practically that we can embody the invisible reality of who Jesus is. Embody the tangible reality of, of the kingdom of God. Be a hope zone. We got to do it together. It takes all of us together, the different skills, the different talents, the different personalities, the different backgrounds, the different understandings, the different ethnicities, all of the differences coming together, united under Jesus, who's our savior, sanctifier, healer, coming king to create together a zone of hope where people can come and go, when I'm struggling, when I'm hurting, when I'm suffering, when I'm betrayed, when I'm in anything, I can come here and I know that I'm gonna receive hope 
I'm going to receive help. There's going to be healing. And there's going to be a sense of home that, that, I, that I've landed with my people. And I've landed with the Lord, which truly and ultimately is my home. I've been thinking this week about what are some of the things that, that potentially cause this not to, to happen or be true. Um, one of the books that I, I bought just uh, as part of my own, again, um, Black History Month, I sent you guys an email just saying, I, I realized I got to start reading more broadly and I do it in certain ways, but I bought a, a handful of books by Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was uh, the spiritual director for MLK. He's a prolific writer and I've read some of his stuff before, but he wrote this book that my spiritual director used to talk to me about called Jesus and the Disinherited. And, and he says this, uh, which I, I think applies here and I want to share this. He says, the basic fact is that Christianity, as it was born in the mind of this Jewish thinker and teacher, appears as a technique of survival for the oppressed. That it became, though, through the, through the intervening years, a religion of the powerful and the dominant, used sometimes as an instrument of oppression, must not tempt us into believing that it was thus in the mind and life of Jesus. Because in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Wherever his spirit appears, the oppressed gather fresh courage, for he announced the good news that fear, hypocrisy, and hatred, the three hounds of hell that track the trail of the disinherited, have no dominion over them. And I read that and was like, yes. But on the other hand, was like, oh, why? Because honestly, when again, you paint the picture of the city, you paint the picture of the new heaven and of the new earth. You paint the picture of the kingdom of God again. People go, yes, where is it? And then you tell them that's Jesus' kingdom. And they go, oh, okay. And then they, again, they start to tell you and they go, I'm cool with Jesus, but I'm not really cool with this church. Why? I think honestly, it's because often throughout history and even in our modern day, the church is associated with what? Hypocrisy, hatred, and fear. Which I appreciate that he points out here as those are three hounds of hell. Like th th those, those, those are the things that oppress people, fear, hypocrisy, and hatred. And again, I, I'm not saying our church is necessarily doing that. But one of the things that hinders us from times being an outpost, a zone of hope, the tangible representation of the love and the presence of God is our association with, with the church throughout history that has over times, if we're honest, been that. A place that holds out fear, hypocrisy, and hatred as opposed to the way of love of our king and his kingdom. And so we've got to continue to acknowledge that, and we've got to continue to lean into the love of Jesus, to be transformed by it, so that we can be in this world together, individually, and together. Again, the, the representation of the invisible reality of, 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 of Christ and his kingdom. Is that okay to talk about that? Yeah, Missio, we often talk about up in and out, right? It's loving God, it's loving one another, it's loving the world. The only way that we can do that, again, is if we allow Christ as king and his kingdom to come back and be central in our lives. Again, our lives individually and our lives corporately. Not my opinions as center of my world. Not a political party as center of my world. Both of them have hidden documents, y'all. Christ and his kingdom as center of my life and my world.
not my history and my past and my hurt and my pain as the center of my world. It's important. It's part of your story. It's not everything. Not my hopes and dreams and my plans and my aspirations as the hope and as the center of my world. No, no, Christ and his kingdom as the center of the world. Not my wealth, not my vocation, not my relationships, not any of these other things as the center of my world. Christ and his kingdom as the center of, his, of, of your world and of the world of this church. A king whose kingdom is about love. A love that is powerful enough to enter into any situation and be a healer, be a savior, be a sanctifier, and be a loving king in that place. Who again, gives a hope of a greater future than any other story that this world has to offer. And it's the only true story in this world. So here's what we're going to do. Um, starting February 12th, uh, right before we start Lent, we're going we're gonna to start a, a series um, that's going to lead us through Lent called This Is My Body. And what we're going to be doing is looking at the seven letters in Revelation that Jesus wrote through the hand of John to the seven churches uh, in Revelation. And we're going to be looking at what are the words that Jesus said to his body? And what are the words then that in light of looking at that, that Jesus is saying to us today as his body? And I want to just give us kind of a precursor for, for what we're going to be looking at. That in those seven letters, there's, there's seven common themes or seven common threads that we're going to see as we're looking at these letters to the church, which is the body of Christ. In the seven letters, there's these common threads, and it's this, that number one, that Jesus is the one who's speaking. Each letter is going to start with the words of, and there's this amazing description of who Jesus is, which we'll, we'll take some time to look at when we get there. But it's Jesus speaking. And Jesus writes to each church and he says, I know this about you, or I know your blah, 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 blah. We're going to be reminded that, that as a church, Jesus is speaking to us. We're going to be reminded that we're known. We're known by Jesus. Again, that, that he is the greatest invisible reality or unseen reality of the present always. That he knows us. He knows you. He knows me. We're going to talk about, each letter talks about the reality that we're embattled. That there's something that the church needs to remember. There's something that the church needs to repent of. There's something that the church need, where the church needs to shift its focus from something else being the center to Jesus and his kingdom being the center. There's an embattlement. We're going to talk about the fact that we're overcomers. End of every single letter, there's this statement, and to the one who overcomes. And that ties into this reward that we're rewarded. To the one who overcomes, I will give. Boom, 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 boom. And we're going to talk about this and look at this. And what I appreciate about those letters and what I appreciate about how we're going to look at this is that in each one, Jesus is giving an honest assessment, a loving, honest assessment about what's going on in the church. He gives a stern warning. Again, a loving, stern warning. And then he gives a hopeful promise, a hope-filled promise, tied again to the truth and the reality that he is king of all things. And he does have a kingdom that is both here now in part and will be fully in one day when he returns, that he is the coming king. Speak honestly to us in love, speak to the heart issues and ground us in the reality that he's king and his kingdom is to be central in all that we do. 
Last thing about that really quick is this. When we talk about the embattlement, one of the things, and we started talking about this last week a little bit, one of the reasons why the church experiences this embattlement, you can look at it all throughout history and in those letters, it's because we've forgotten again the story that we're a part of. We've forgotten to make Jesus king and his kingdom central in that story. And so each time we're going to be continued to ask the story of, or the, 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 the question of, of, again, what's the story that we're living into? And also, what do we believe to be at the center? Because all the embattlement that we face, it's when we think that something else is center in this world. And that causes us to feel like we've got a jockey and we've got to fight and we've got a posture and we've got to do all these things. But see, when Jesus, who is king and his kingdom are, are central, we're reminded, oh man, all those things are put into perspective. And the embattlement is put into perspective. And there's a new sense of hope. There's a new sense of healing. There's a new sense of help. There's a new sense of home. And as we live into that reality, then we can bring that to the world. We can be the embodiment of the love and the presence of God in this world. Okay? Missio, this morning in closing, we're going to do communion together. We're going to take communion and we're going to worship. And this morning, for, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, who have recognized and acknowledged Jesus as your Savior, as your sanctifier, as your healer, as your coming King, those that have surrendered to his love, I, I invite you to come to this table, which again reminds us and is a representation of the love of Christ, the love of God. And I want to encourage you this morning as you come to think about this. Where are you in need of hope? Where are you in need of help? Where are you in need of healing? And where are you in need of home? And I encourage you to be honest about that this morning. And have a conversation with the Lord. And as you do that, that you would feel the invitation of his love towards you, for you, even filling you, and inviting you to come to the table, which on it has a cup of juice and a wafer, the cup which represents the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ which was shed for you. And for you to come and to take that in remembrance of who he is as your savior, your sanctifier, your healer, your coming king, and take of it into your own physical body, being reminded of the fact that you are the embodiment of his love, that his love was poured out for you and his body was broken. And we get to take it and receive it into our bodies as a reminder that we are the embodiment of that love, that even in our brokenness, we are loved, that even in the suffering, we are loved, even in the pain, we are loved. And he offers us this morning Hope, help, healing, and a reminder of where we are at home with him and in his kingdom, in the family of God. Amen. So I invite you to come and receive and we'll worship together.